Uh, so as Pastor had mentioned, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. So that's what I'm going to preach on, 17 through 21. But I'm going to read, I'm going to start in verse 13 and read through 21. Because I really feel like um, from 13 to 21, this is the foundation, really, of Peter's letter. The whole letter is set up for us in these few verses. He has in mind for us how to bring about holy conduct in God's people. And he makes that very plain, as you'll see. And then he spends the rest of the letter practically trying to explain to us how to be holy. What do we do? I mean, how do we live then? Right? He talks about wives and husbands. He talks about practical applications for pastors as shepherds to be humble. He talks about being free from malice and deceit. Uh, he talks about leaving behind the old life of debauchery and drunkenness. And, and so he gets very specific, as we will see in future messages, Lord willing. But he establishes right here in these verses the motivation behind how we do those things. From where does the power come to actually be holy? So brothers, uh, let's, let's read this. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, the whole driving theme behind this letter, be holy as I am holy. That is what Peter is after, holy conduct. As he says in 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And as Brother Terry opened for us last time so wonderfully, um, it's a battle of the mind. See, in verse 13 is therefore, he begins, therefore comes in light of the glorious salvation that's been secured for us through Jesus. That there is actually an imperishable, undefiled, uncorruptible inheritance waiting for you, believer, in heaven. And he wants us to set our hope fully there. And I'm going to tell you up front, the key for this motivation, the key to, to do this, comes through knowledge. Knowledge. He wants us to conduct ourselves with fear, verse 18, knowing 
knowing something. So we have to know something if we are going to be able to be holy as God is holy. And there's two things that he opens for us in 17 and 18. The first is knowing God as our Father, this impartial judge of the universe, holy, righteous God, we call on Him as Father. And the second thing is, in 18, knowing that we've been ransomed, I'm paraphrasing, with the precious blood of Christ. Not with perishable things, but we've been ransomed. This is what Peter emphasizes when he tells us, be holy as God is holy. I mean, come on, brother. When we hear those things, be holy, is that when, when we hear God tell us to be holy, it's like, how on earth? Who can be holy like God is holy? God, why would you give me this command? You know I can't be holy like you're holy. Or does he, brother? He gives us this command for a reason. And he gives us the power to do it and to carry it out. So let's begin in 17 and see the first part of this motivation. And remember, yes, Peter is after holy living, but in the in his next letter, he writes to us that no prophecy comes from the will of man, but men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is God's divine estimation of what where we're going to get power to be holy. And we have to remember that. The Word of God is the only place we have to turn for a proper understanding of these things. Especially in today, where in America, just the bombarding of everyone's opinion so accessible to us and the caving in of so many churches and, quote, Christian leaders and teachers, and they are just giving up the Word of God and capitulating to every whim of the culture. We must be Christians who stand on the Word of God, believe God at His Word, and find power there. So 17 starts with, and if you call on Him as Father. That is to say, since you call on Him as Father, right? He's writing to these elect exiles who were professing Christians that called on this God of the universe as their father. Through salvation, God has become the believer's father, you and I. So the holy judge of the universe now is our father, okay? And secondly, our father is an impartial judge who judges according to each one's deeds, right? God is not a respecter of persons at all, like we are. We can so easily just show favoritism without even, without even realizing it. You know, you see somebody, this is so true for me, like when I go out evangelizing, okay? I have hesitate. why do I have hesitation when I see, you know, a, well-dressed guy and he looks like he's got his, you know, life together and he's with his family and it's like, I hesitate to go up there and talk to him. Why? I respect of persons. I don't want this guy to look at me any kind of way and think I'm weird, right? But when you see this poor, 
man just on the side of the road there, and it's like, oh, it's so easy to just go talk to him. What is that? God doesn't act that way, brethren. Priest or prostitute, you're on the same field. President or peasant, you're on the same playing field before God. It doesn't matter who you are. God is an impartial judge. And yet, remember, he's our father. And he will judge both believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers according to their deeds. Okay, now, immediately two things pop into my mind as I read this, okay? The first is, I don't know if it's a problem or a question, I would say. How is it that God, as an impartial judge, judges me according to my works in light of justification? Right? I mean, if it would seem to me, if God is now my Father, the Holy Judge of the universe is my Father, why would that lead me to conduct myself in fear? Right? You would, we, I don't know, I thought, well, that sort of relieves the fear. That's like, whew, okay, God's my Father. The Judge now is my Father. I'm good. That is not what God has in mind. All right? So the first thing is, how does this work in light of justification? And the second is, how is it that God is our Father should still cause us to fear? Well, let's look at the first thing, that God is an impartial judge according to each one's deeds. And we don't want to be ignorant of, of God's judgment. Listen to this text in uh, Romans chapter 2, 6-8. through eight. He will render to each one according to his deeds. That is God. God will render to each one according to his deeds. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Now the key phrase we have to get here is according to. God can be an impartial judge according to each one's deeds. In this sense, none of us uh, would have a problem with this. I don't know, maybe some of us might, but usually we don't have a problem with looking at the unbeliever and seeing that their wicked deeds and their evil lives will be rightly judged by God. And they deserve it, brethren. According to their deeds, they deserve judgment from God, which results in eternal damnation. Hell. It's that the evil deeds done by the unbeliever, okay, accord with a lifestyle of someone who doesn't love God, who doesn't trust God, does, certainly doesn't believe His words. If, if they believed His words, they would have acted differently. And so we see the bad, evil fruit springs forth out of the root of unbelief. The unbeliever in his unbelief produces evil deeds. Hatred against God is really what it is in rebellion. And we understand that, beloved. However, the same thing works for the believer who does good deeds. And it's important to understand that when God says he will give eternal life according to our works, 
to those who do good. He's saying that the eter- those, those deeds come as a confirmation of saving faith. Okay, it's different than saying your deeds merit eternal life or earn you eternal life or you're given eternal life based on your deeds. No, no, this is to accord with, is to be in line with, and it's to agree with. It's not coming as a, salvation doesn't come as a result of your good works. It's quite the opposite. Salvation comes, or good works come, as a result of salvation. And it is always that way. We know that no one merits or earns salvation according to works, and the scriptures are clear. Listen to Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Father, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So God saves us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So salvation does not come. I want to be clear. It does not come based on doing good deeds. However, we are saved for good deeds. The reason one does something good is because they've been saved and they obey God from a new heart that loves Him. And you see, this is, this is God's doing in a person's life. This is nothing we can take credit for. When a believer does good deeds, it just confirms the presence that God has changed the nature of them. So good works then are not necessary in order to get saved or to earn salvation, but they are necessary to confirm salvation. It's very important. What else does James mean when he says faith without works is dead? True saving faith is is the key which unlocks the ability to be pleasing to God in any capacity. Apart from faith, nobody can please God. It's impossible to please God without faith, is what Hebrews 11 tells us. And yet, good deeds done by us in faith, the scriptures liken those to sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God. So God actually gets glory from us, from the believer who in faith obeys Him. That's why on Judgment Day, God can look at the believer, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. Or here is somebody who by faith has sought for glory and honor and immortality by by showing it with their good deeds. Remember Matthew 25 in the final judgment. He says to those on his left and those on his right, those on his right, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's that all your deeds have been in line with God's saving work in your life. 
it's evidenced itself in the way you've lived, that you love God and you trust Him. Again, not to your own credit, beloved. We can't trust Him and love Him by ourselves or in our own power. But as we're going to see in the next verse, it's His work in us that He produces the fruit He wants in our lives. So we don't, we don't boast in our works, beloved. And it's also important to note that the judgment of God for the believer is like that judgment in 1 Corinthians 3, if you remember, where God renders rewards to believers who have done good. And believers who have not done good suffer loss. They get works burned up. And so there is a reality in God's impartial judgment that there are believers who will get more rewards in heaven than others. I don't uh, pretend to know exactly what that looks like, but it's a fact. And there are believers who will on that day find, I wasted a good chunk of my life. I just spent my life what beating the air, as Paul calls it. And so in light of these things, this answers for us really, why should judge, why should viewing, knowing God's judgment this way lead us to conduct ourselves with fear? Well, see, this is what, this is what Peter's after. God as our father and impartial judge should cause us to fear not, not the fear of, I might go to hell if I don't shape up. It's the fear of making the judgment of God and His fatherhood look like nothing to the world. It's the fear of reverence and holy honor to want to make God look good with our lives, to demonstrate to Him and to everyone around us how wonderful, how powerful, how amazing the saving work of God has been in our lives. We want to fear God in that sense. We want to be reverent. We want to be careful to obey Him, beloved. Yes, for rewards. Yes, for all the reasons that He holds out to us. Primarily, though, because it's His glory at stake. It's His glory at stake. When we profess to know Jesus and we tell the world, God is my Father, and He's an impartial judge who will judge you, the one who's an unbeliever. And then they see us, what? Well, huh, it doesn't really matter how I live, you know, I can just spend my life doing whatever I want to do. And it's like, what? That Does that make God look good? Does that make you look any different than the world's belief or the devil's belief? We don't want to know that way, beloved. So, Knowing God as an impartial judge and as our Father should cause us to fear to want to fulfill the purpose for which we've been saved, for good works. And that's one of the many purposes. It's not the only purpose, but it's certainly the one Peter has in mind. And the second thing God wants us to know, verse 18 So the main command around conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, and that is 
again to say, through this life. He, Peter is quite literally writing to those who are in exile, who are being persecuted for their faith, and they've gone off to different countries, and they've fled, and they've been pushed out. But we are often referred to as believers, sojourners and exiles in this world. This, this is temporary, it's passing, this is not our eternal home. Remember, Terry's message, setting our hope on the glory that is to come. There is a home and a glory to come that's not of this world. It's a future one, and we put all of our eggs in that basket. All of them. Right? So we conduct ourselves with fear, knowing, beloved, knowing two things. That we've been ransomed from our futile ways and knowing that we've been ransomed with the blood of Christ. What we've been ransomed with and what we've been ransomed from. Let's look at what we've been ransomed from real quick. This is going to shed some light as well on on the judgment aspect. You know, God here, Peter is not saying you've been ransomed from hell, which is a glorious reality. We have been, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say we've been ransomed from wrath or from judgment or from death. What he does say is we've been ransomed from futile ways. We've been ransomed from futile ways. What are futile ways? Futile, it's, it's useless. It's empty, meaningless, vain, corrupt, sinful ways. A sinful kind of living. You've been ransomed from it. As a believer in God, you've been purchased. God's death on the cross has purchased for every believer freedom from futile ways. So think, you go back to the judgment of God according to our deeds. Again, it's the purchase of Christ that's freed us from damnable deeds. And listen, when God, when Jesus sheds his blood and makes a purchase, brother, it's effective. It is effective. It happens. When Jesus sets us free, we are free. He does, he never comes up short in his ransom payment. He never fails to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. And he tells us we've been ransomed from futile ways, from sinful living. In order to make our deeds in accord with salvation. So listen to Romans 6 and how it sums up this reality for us. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, so so let me ask you, when we think about Jesus' death for us, dying for our sins, do, do we think about only that we've been justified? You know, all my sins have been forgiven. 
and I have a clean slate before God. That's wonderful, and it's good, and it's right to think that. But we should equally think about that the purchase God has made through his, through Jesus' death on the cross has freed us from the power of sin now. It has freed us. It's a reality. We are not slaves to sin anymore. Sin will have no dominion over you, believer. None. It can't. You've died to it. And Jesus has died to purchase it for you. So this is a, it's a glorious thought. And I know it's hard, beloved. I, it is hard to walk in, in light of this reality sometimes. Because I know I, the first thing I hear or I think about when I hear be holy as God is holy. Like I said, it's like, what? Well, I've blown that. How? I mean, there's so much sin that I struggle with. And, you know, isn't my heart sick and desperately wicked? How, how can I be so holy? But we say these things, brother. I say these things, beloved, as a, sometimes to my shame, as a way that just gives up the fight against sin. It's just the way, it, what is it? It's false humility. It's like, well, this is just the way it is. You know, I'm just a sinner in this world and, that's just the way it's got to be, you know. Thank God Jesus did it for me. Well, yes, praise the Lord that He did it for you. But He did it for you to free you from the power of it now. Amen. So, we've got to think that way. We've got to think that way against all of our sin. We don't let our guard down when it comes to fighting sin. Now, it's one thing to know this, right? It's one thing to know Jesus shed his blood, freed me from feudal ways, but where does the power come from? Well, it comes from the knowledge, okay? You've got to know this reality. Jesus died for you, and his purchase set you free. And when he sets you free, you're free indeed. You are. But the transforming power that says, I'm going to walk, in light of this, and actually be able to conduct myself with fear and be holy as God is holy. And as we'll see, the list of commands to come from Peter are hard ones, beloved. Hard ones. Especially in light of the suffering that he calls Christians to just faithfully endure. So, so where's the power? Right? Like, like the hymn we sang about the precious blood, it's power cleanses me so that no stain of it remains. Okay, we have to renew our minds with the knowledge. And if we are faithful to renew our minds in the knowledge, God is faithful to transform us through it. Okay, we don't necessarily do the transforming. And yet, we have to faithfully apply ourselves to be renewed in our understanding, to saturate our minds in these realities, to go past the mere knowledge of facts about God. The mere knowledge that Jesus shed His blood to rescue me from the power of sin in my life. 
we move past it to the glorious, pervasive realities that are behind those truths, okay? When we say that, they're not just words. There are real, powerful realities that come to people who believe them, who believe them by faith. So I want us to try to see some of what I'm talking about with this glorious reality behind this verse 18. So to be redeemed, to be ransomed, is to, that, that Jesus Christ had to make a payment. Okay, There was payment to be made for us. For you, for, for me, that would rescue us and buy us back from slavery to the devil, slavery to sin, and it would buy us back to God the way God had originally intended it, for us to be restored back to a right relationship with Him, to be able to walk with Him and pray to Him and He hear us. And these great promises that he holds out to us, for those to become ours, there it, it couldn't have just been handed to you. It wasn't just handed to you. It came with great cost. Great cost. Jesus Christ had to shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There had to have been your sins paid for because of the debt in which you've put yourself in through your sins to God. Something you and I could never pay. It's not viable, contrary to what a lot of churches want to tell people, it's not viable with money. We don't bring perishable things to buy spiritual, imperishable realities. The corruptible does not inherit the incorruptible. Think about, think about if you, if you buy a car, okay? You pay a thousand dollars for the car. How do you treat the car? It's disposable, right? It's like, you know, I back in a pole, ah, whatever, just brush it off. Okay, now suppose you work hard. You save your money. Blood, sweat, and tears. Just working, saving, making sacrifices left and right because you want a nice car and you pay $100,000 for the car. I'm not advising you do that. I'm just saying. (laughs) How do you treat the car? It is your baby, right? It's like, don't even look at it the wrong way. There's, there's just so much more value attached to it. And I'd even argue, even if it was the same car, that's why we know with our children, when we just spoil them and just hand them whatever they want and give them everything they want without teaching them the diligence of work, of hard work, and what it means to save and try to instill some kind of value to them, really, we're not helping them when it comes to understanding the value of Christ. We're just making everything easy and just seem like, I deserve it. We don't want to do that. 
We don't want to do that. So think about it. If we, if we do that with a car, how much more so should we be doing that with the blood of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, perfect and blameless Lamb, spotless, more valuable than all of us combined, times a trillion. Everything is His. He's the Creator and we are the creation. The gap is immense. And the Creator would come down to die for the creation? Come on. This is glorious stuff. And so we we think about these things. We ponder them to get behind just Jesus died for me. Okay, that should invoke some feelings in us. we got to think about it rightly. And then what? It causes us to live with holy conduct. Oh, Lord, you purchased me. Shed your blood to free me from sin. I'm going to go back and live in it? No. I'm not going to be a slave to it anymore. You've been purchased from it. I know you purchased me from it. And there's real power to overcome it. And knowing that, and believing that reality, it's like this. You know, when more than once, unfortunately, I have been stopped from evangelizing a certain person because I hesitate. I, what are they going to think about me? And I just sit there and I think, oh, it's not, probably not a good time, you know, and they're busy, and he looks like he's got something going on. And the time just... It, it escapes me, and the, the opportunity goes by. But beloved, I promise you, more than once, the thought of Christ on the cross, in the garden, there, dropping tears of blood for me, his thought of, of joy that was to be his forevermore of securing a bride and seeing him suffering on the cross with spiritual eyes as I read it. And I see the, the payment and the cost and the suffering of wrath. And then, you, and then he comes and he tells me, go, go and tell them how much I've done for you. And, and that more than once has helped me to push through those feelings. It's that kind of reality that I want us to see and know that drives you, that motivates you to love the Lord, to not let up in the fight against sin in which He's already made you victorious. He's already won the battle. And now he gives you a sword and some armor and you put it on and you, you fight. It's like, how dare we accept such an amazing salvation and then make light of it by just accepting defeat at the hands of any sin? Any sin. You have lingering pride, greed, lust, anger, Envy, distractions, bickerings with our spouses, impatience with our children, 
Beloved, we make light. We treat God's purchase of us like it was a thousand dollar car. When we just say, ah, sin is just too strong for me. I just can't fight. I just can't do it. And we drop the sword and we put our armor away and we just make concession and make, give ourselves, you know, good excuses. I don't, I don't want us to do that. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about perfection. You know that, beloved. This is not perfection. But if you are a Christian here today, if you are a Christian, you know in your heart and in your soul, there's a longing of freedom from sin. There's a longing inside of you to love and obey and honor Christ because He's put the longing in you. Through your faith, the Spirit takes up residence in you. And along with the Spirit comes the desire to fight. The desire to put our sins to death. The big ones and the little ones. All of them. So we don't want to let down our guards. We don't want to make concessions. But knowing the costliness of my salvation that God secured for me eternal redemption. Can I not be more patient? I mean, come on, my Savior, the, the, like a lamb before the slaughter, he was led just silent, beloved, for you. He could have easily escaped it. And this is coming from someone who, I mean, it's hard, beloved, to make self-sacrifice for love, out of love for someone else. It's costly. It really is costly to put, our, to put aside my desire for what I want to help a brother or sister in Christ or my family. I mean, really? I think, how cool. It's hard for you to do this. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Shedding his blood so that you don't, to make it possible for you to actually love that way. Now, in light of this, I know there are some of us here, those listening, that have no idea about what I'm talking about. No idea about what it means to call God their Father. No idea about fighting against sin with a heart longing against it. Not because, oh, it just makes me look bad. I should probably, you know, shape up my life so people think better of me. But but the desire to want to please God. There are those of us who just don't believe God's words. And we don't see a valuable sacrifice in Christ. I mean, Jesus died for us, and I'm going to hear it a thousand times, the thousand and one time I've heard it, and it still doesn't mean anything. Beloved, I'm, I'm pleading with you, friend. If that is you, and you, you don't understand these as realities in your life, you've got to know, you've got to know that there is no fatherly judge for you when you die. There is only a holy, 
and righteous and just judgment coming upon your wicked deeds. That is an expectation of fury and wrath and flaming fire of vengeance because you don't love Him. And yet He extends His hand out to you all day long. It says, please turn, come to me, come. And we don't. You don't. Think about it. All your ways are futile ways. They're futile. This is exactly what Jesus died to free us from. And you've given your life to who knows what. But it's, I guarantee you, it's perishable. Because all the things that the unbeliever, those who just don't believe God, all the things your heart desires are those which perish. They fade away. It grows old. And none of it can go with you. And you just hope in the end, hey, it's going to be fine. But it's not going to be fine. There's an expectation of judgment, a real judgment for your deeds to come. And so what do you do? I, I hope you, you grasp that. And that it does instill some kind of fear in you. And, and it does cause you to say, oh, I don't want that. I hope you don't want it. Nobody should want it. Nobody wants to go to hell. They just, they just think God's going to be like Santa Claus and sweep it under the rug. But listen, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come down to live the perfect life for you, that you have blown, that all of us have blown, believer or not. And He was perfect for you in your place so that all the righteousness you need when you stand before God has been earned for you. And then, not only that, He died for you on the cross, what we're talking about, spilling His blood out, dying and God punishing him for all the wrath, all the sin that you've committed, an eternity of hell placed on his shoulders that you deserve. Is there a more loving thing? I can't think of one. Has it ever been heard of? A man, a murderer, goes to court and the judge says, you know what? I'll take your death sentence for you. I mean, that would be, what? One would scarcely die for a righteous person, the scriptures tell us. But that God has so shed his love even on his enemies that he would die for you while you're yet a sinner. And so, what does he want you to do in light of this? Beloved, two things. Repent and believe. You come to God. How does this look practically? You can have it now, right now as you sit here. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord and you're not sure that His blood has freed you from the power of your sin, that you would confess your sin to Him, that you would come to Him and say, yeah, I, I have lived in futile ways and it's wrong. 
and you ask His forgiveness, and you trust Christ, that yes, Christ has died for me. He earned my perfection in my place. And you, you just pray and you ask the Lord to save you, give you the new, give you a new heart that loves Him, that hates sin, fill you with the Spirit to free you from the power of sin, to deliver you from, from a life of futility. And He is faithful to grant it every time. He doesn't withhold forgiveness or salvation from anybody who comes. If anybody comes, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to Jesus and drink. The the fountains are open for everyone. There's forgiveness for everyone who wants it. And I plead with you. I plead with you. Think about it. Be made right with God. Turn from your futile, empty living. See that it's worthless. It's not going to get you anything. And you come to Jesus who will deliver you. And upon your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. You will. Now he only adds to the preciousness of Christ even more so in verses 20 and 21. Let's look at verse 20 real quick. He was foreknown, that is Jesus, the spotless lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I mean, beloved, this foreknown God before all eternity had the plan already established to redeem His people. And yes, He already had a plan established which would ordain sin to come into the world. And He already procured the way to save you from it. The plan for Jesus to come down as a man and die on the cross to save His people was not an afterthought. Or like, oh, oops, some sin got in there and messed stuff up. Now what do I do? No. Beloved, this was God's plan from the beginning. From the beginning. Before He created you or I, He had already set His love upon you. And He had already determined that Jesus would die for you. And again, eternal God made manifest in the last days for the sake of you. Of you who have been rebellious and still sin came down, what, to leave you there wallowing in your sin and say, oh, it's okay. Maybe when you get to heaven, things will get better. Beloved, He has set us free from such slavery and bondage to corruption by making us new through His blood, through faith in His blood to make us new, to be people who would be zealous for good works, to be His eternal bride in heaven, to enjoy Him throughout the rest of the days, eternity, all eternity. There's an emphasis there. There's an emphasis 
on it being for you. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So, beloved, I, I don't know if, this, if that's not motivational to love our Lord Jesus unto holiness and to cause us to fight and war against sin, though we will fall, though we will sin, but we pick up our sword again and we go at it again and we strive for holiness again because he shed his blood for us. So I do pray that 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 helps us, beloved. Um, Well, let's pray. Father, Lord, we need your help. I thank you for such glorious texts like these, Father, that we can we can really go deep in and think about their implications. And I just pray that that we would be transformed in light of these things. Help us to have the desires of our heart, O Lord, and, and that we would walk closer to you and and see more of your glory and thus be transformed by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.